Daniel chapter 1. I'm going to read this whole chapter with you. Um, It's not an easy chapter, and there's a lot of hidden horror in these verses. Just things said very matter-of-factly and just passed right over that we don't even think about. Uh, But uh, this was not an easy season for the people of Israel. They had been judged by the Lord because of their continual sin. He had been patient with them for a good long time, nearly a thousand years. But he finally brought the judgment that he had warned and warned and warned and warned and his people had remained unrepentant. And so Daniel is the first generation of people who had been taken from the Holy Land. They had watched the destruction of Jerusalem. They had watched a wicked enemy come in and ravage everything that they had built. They watched the temple desecrated. They watched Jerusalem destroyed. And then, just to demoralize the people, the Nebuchadnezzar and his armies took all their best and brightest and brought them to Babylon and made them eunuchs to serve in the king's house. And Daniel was among those. So these are their scholars and their musicians and their artists and their warriors. That's what Babylon did to demoralize the people. They just took their best right out of the land and they left them with all of the meek and the humble and those who had never really accomplished much. That's all that they left. They were a vicious people. And the Lord used them somehow for some reason to judge his people. And Daniel is finding himself now in a foreign land, surrounded by a foreign people who do not worship the God he worshiped. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, reading from the New Revised Standard Version. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. These he brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Then the king commanded his palace master, Ashpenaz, to bring some of the Israelites of the royal family and of the nobility, young men without physical defect and handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight and competent to serve in the king's palace. They were to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine. They were to be educated for three years so that at the end of that time they could be stationed in the king's court. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. The palace master gave them other names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. He names them all after pagan gods. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine. So he asked the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. Now God allowed Daniel to receive favor and compassion from the palace master. The palace master said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king. He's appointed your food and your drink. If he should see you in poorer condition than the other young men of your own age, you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel asked the guard whom the palace master had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. You can then compare our appearance with the appearance of the young men who eat the royal rations and deal with your servants according to what you observe. So he agreed to this proposal and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days it was observed that they appeared better and fatter than all the young men who had been eating the royal rations. So the guard continued to withdraw their royal rations and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and skill in every aspect of literature and wisdom. Daniel also had insight into all visions and dreams. At the end of the time that the king had set for them to be brought in, the palace master brought them into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar. 
and the king spoke with them. And among them all, no one was found to compare with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they were stationed in the king's court. In every matter of wisdom and understanding concerning which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel continued there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is a book, Resident Aliens, by Stanley Hauerwas and Will Williman. It's a difficult book, a little hard to access, but this section, I think, is as clear as day. They write this, This book is about a renewed sense of what it means to be Christian, more precisely of what it means to be pastors who care for Christians in a distinctly changed world. When and how did we change? Although it may sound trivial... One of us, remember this book is written by these two men, one of us is tempted to date the shift sometime on a Sunday evening in 1963. Then in Greenville, South Carolina, in defiance of the state's time-honored blue laws, the Fox Theater opened on Sunday. Seven of us, regular attenders of the Methodist Youth Fellowship at Buncombe Street Church, made a pact to enter the front door of the church, be seen, then quietly slip out the back door and join John Wayne at the Fox. That evening has come to represent a watershed in the history of Christendom, South Carolina style. On that night, Greenville, South Carolina, the last pocket of resistance to secularity in the Western world, served notice that it would no longer be a prop for the church. There would be no more free passes for the church, no more free rides. The Fox Theater went head-to-head with the church over who would provide the worldview for the young. That night in 1963, the Fox Theater won the opening skirmish. You see, our parents had never worried about whether we would grow up Christian. The church was the only show in town. On Sundays, the town closed down. One could not even buy a gallon of gas. There was a traffic jam on Sunday mornings at 9.45 when all went to their respective Sunday schools. By overlooking much that was wrong in that world, it was a racially segregated world, remember, people saw a world that looked good and right. In taking a child to Sunday school, parents affirmed everything that was good, wholesome, reasonable, and American. Church, home, and state formed a national consortium that worked together to instill Christian values. People grew up Christian simply by being lucky enough to be born in places like Greenville, South Carolina, or Pleasant Grove, Texas. A few years ago, the two of us awoke and realized that whether or not our parents were justified in the belief, in this belief about this world and the Christian faith, nobody believed it today. At least almost nobody. Whether we are with Pentecostals, Catholics, Lutherans, or United Methodists, we meet few young parents, college students, or auto mechanics who believe that one becomes Christian today by simply breathing the air and drinking the water in the generous, hospitable environment of Christendom America. A few may still believe that by electing a few Christian senators, passing a few new laws, and tinkering with the federal budget, we can form a Christian culture, or at least one that's a bit more just. But most people know this view to be touchingly anachronistic. All sorts of Christians are waking up and realizing that it is no longer our world, if it ever was. That's poignant and difficult. Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 10, verse 16, See, I'm sending you out like sheep into the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. That's what we're going to think about together today. How do we 
be wise as serpents among wolves. How do we remain innocent in a culture that is doing everything it can to pollute us with worldliness? How did, did Daniel and his friends remain pure in that context? Because however we got here, we are here. As we think together about what it means to live as God's people in the midst of wolves, we'll consider the example of Daniel as we talk through Daniel's exile, Babylon's requirements, Daniel's wisdom, and God's faithfulness. Those are our four points. We're going to begin with Daniel's exile. Look back at chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. These he brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Then the king commanded his palace master, Ashpenaz, to bring some of the Israelites of the royal family and of the nobility, young men without physical defect and handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight, and competent to serve in the king's palace Babylon wanted to make Israel weak by taking away her brightest and her best that's what historians tell us but there was more to it than that we remember if we remember our lessons from previous weeks book of Deuteronomy chapter 32 verses 8 and 9 tell us that when God scattered the nations at the tower of Babel he assigned them to the number of the sons of God he assigned them to lesser beings of his council, angelic beings, to rule and govern those nations under him. And he took special interest in the people of Israel. That's what Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 and 9 have told us. And as the story unfolds, we find that those lesser beings revolt against him. They lead the nations to worship them as gods instead of worshiping the one true God. They lead them into false teachings. They ask for their loyalty. Well, we see that in the book of Genesis. It comes to a head with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. The, now we know that not all the nations of the Middle East were at war with God at this time because we met Melchizedek. He was a king who was a priest of the Most High God. He was worshiping the same God as Abraham. So they were not all in rebellion. But, but Sodom and Gomorrah could not have been any more in rebellion against God. And so we've talked about that story where God came to Abraham and said he was going to destroy the city. And now you have to remember this conversation because Abraham asked that God would be merciful and that he might not destroy the city if there were 10 righteous people. Now, of course, in Simon and Gomorrah, there were not 10 righteous people. The, the, the authorities that had rebelled against God, they had chased out all the righteous people. And that left them vulnerable. And so there were not 10 righteous so God destroyed the city. Now, we have to remember, Paul tells us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The leaders of Sodom and Gomorrah were not destroyed when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Just the people. And they learned a valuable lesson. If you want to keep God's judgment away from you, what should you do? Make sure you let ten righteous people in your city. You can live as wicked as you want. You can do everything you want as long as you convince 10 righteous people to live in your city. And those 10 righteous people will pray for your city and they will keep you safe from the wrath of God. 
They learn that lesson. So you know where they're at work when they try to curry favor with believers. They want believers because believers are insulation against the judgment of God. The fact that somebody is being nice to you does not mean that they care for you. And that's what happened to Daniel and to his friends. They were treated like princes in Babylon. They were given the best food. They were given the best clothes. They were given access to the king. But it wasn't for their good they were given these things. It was for the king's good. Because we're going to learn in this book that Nebuchadnezzar knew the God of Israel was something different than the other gods. And he knew if he could get access to the wisdom of the people of God, he would have access to a wisdom that he would never get on his own. And so he kept them close. He wanted to know what they knew. You'll see Daniel will interpret dreams for him. Daniel will give him omens and warnings. Daniel will even bring the gospel of, of a sword in these days to Nebuchadnezzar. And the kings of the earth, they want the knowledge of God. They're hungry for the tree of knowledge. The knowledge of good and evil is not enough for them. They want the knowledge that comes from God himself. But God's not going to give it to them, so who can they take it from? The people of God will give it up willingly if they're bribed appropriately. And so that is what he is doing. He brings them in to Babylon, not only to destroy Israel, but to protect Babylon too. Israel had not followed God. So God sent her people into exile, and the nations that pillaged her tried to protect themselves with her holiness. Look at Daniel chapter 1, verse 4. They were to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine. They were to be educated for three years so that at the end of that time they could be stationed in the king's court. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. The palace master gave them other names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Babylon did not want Daniel and his people to remain truly loyal to Yahweh. So he wanted them in his city. He wanted their wisdom. He wanted what they had gained from this long relationship with God. There's evidence in history that the Babylonians even took in the writings of Israel. In fact, most scholars believe today that the Bible we have in our hands was finished by the Israelites while they were in exile in, in Babylon. They collected the writings and they determined by the Spirit of God which ones of these were authoritative. That all happened in Babylon. Babylon wanted that knowledge taken to them. The very shape of the way that the Israelites tell the story of creation seems to be critiquing the beliefs of the Babylonians. So they wanted that knowledge there, but they knew it was dangerous to keep people loyal to Yahweh close to the king. So what could they do? Well, they're going to infect them with Babylonian knowledge. So you, you can be Jewish, that's fine. You can come uh, here and you can have access to the king, but you also have to learn the Babylonian stories. We're going to teach you new stories. And you're not going to speak Hebrew anymore. Now you're going to speak Chaldean. And 
We're going to challenge you for three years to learn everything you need to know because you know you need to live in Babylon. So you need to know our laws and you need to know our precepts and you need to know our, I mean, if you're going to advise the king, you better know how everything works. So we are going to educate you on what it means to be a Babylonian. And it's all for your good because it's going to give you access to the king and you're going to have positions of authority and you're going to have rule and power and influence in this kingdom. But you got to learn our stories and you got to learn our language and we're going to change your names. We're going to give you names of our pagan gods because you know you got to fit in with babylonian society those names you came with they're a bit too ethnic and we want some really flat john smith names you know what i mean so we're going to call you belteshazzar and that doesn't sound like john smith to us but you're not babylonian that's as john smith as you get the babylonians knew two things If we keep God's people with us, God won't destroy us because he loves his people. So we'll keep them close. But if they remain God's people, they'll be a threat to us. So we got to pollute them. And a little yeast will leaven the whole thing. So they taught the people of God how to be Babylonian under the auspices that they could influence the king. Have you, does that sound familiar to you? Because the more things change, the more they stay the same. These same rulers of Babylon, the spiritual forces, are playing the same game today. They have not changed. The people have changed. History's changed. Generations have come and go. But these forces, the forces that have been at war with God, they're the same. And they do it the same way every single time. Look at Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine. So he asked the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. Now what Daniel is getting at is that Daniel is trying to navigate as he's now been brought to Babylon. What can I do in Babylon without compromising God and what can I not do in Babylon? I can learn their stories, I suppose. I can learn their language. Wow. But if I eat their food, that is a direct rejection of the law of Moses. The kosher laws and the law of Moses required that the people of Israel only eat certain foods. And I won't go through all of them, but some of them you know, like an animal they ate had to have a cloven hoof and chew the cud. So just the cloven hoof, not enough. Just chewing the cud, not enough. It had to have both of those things. If they were going to eat fish, it had to be fish with scales. It could never have skin. Um, They could eat some insects based on their joints for some reason, but not all insects. And so the Babylonians didn't have any of those rules. In Babylon, you could eat whatever you wanted. If it looked good to you, eat it. That was the way that they went. They had very few scruples about food. So this rich food that was going to be fed to Daniel and his friends, there's not going to be kosher. And and so Daniel wrestles with the Lord. He wrestles with his conscience. And he says, what can I do? I can't eat this food. I can't eat this food. If I eat this food, I won't be Jewish anymore. If I eat this food, I'm not going to be the people of God. And so he asks them for permission. Now the Babylonians have a lot of stuff at stake trying to get these guys to compromise their faith. And so the the palace master, God softens his heart so he becomes sympathetic to Daniel, but he's still afraid of Nebuchadnezzar. And he realizes that if these guys are not healthy and fit and look like people who eat meat because Daniel doesn't want to eat any meat because he can't trust what's kosher. So he said, if I do this for you, which he's inclined to do, uh, what what happens if you look weak? The king's going to ask me about your diet and then I have to tell him and then it's my head. 
And so Daniel says, test us. We'll only put you through this for 10 days. If God does not keep us strong and fit, eating only what we're required to, then we'll eat your food. You might say that's testing God, but Daniel believes God will back him up. He really believes God does not want them to become Babylonian. And so he puts God to the test in that, but it's a faithful kind of test. He has no other option. It's either put God to the test or disobey God out of fear. And so he decides to put God to the test. It worked. God strengthened them and they were more fit and more robust and stronger than anybody else. God honored Daniel's refusal to be polluted by the Babylonians. Verse 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and skill in every aspect of literature and wisdom. Daniel also had insight into all visions and dreams. At the end of the time that the king had set for them to be brought in, the palace master brought them into presence of Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among them all, no one was found to compare with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they were stationed in the king's court. In every matter of wisdom and understanding concerning which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel continued there until the first year of King Cyrus. That is a long time. That's like 70 years. Daniel lives in Babylon. God blessed them for their refusal to be polluted. I have such respect for them because they had to navigate this horrible situation in which the Babylonians wanted to pollute them with their way of life and their thinking. And Daniel and, and his friends had to decide how far they could go and how far they could not go. And we're going to see that played out through this entire book. Nebuchadnezzar is going to make a statue and he's going to want them to pledge allegiance to Babylon by worshiping the statue. And they're going to have to ask themselves, can I do that? They're going to tell Daniel he can't pray publicly. You've got to do it privately. You can't do it in public, though. And Daniel's got to decide, can I compromise that? It's a book about figuring out what is essential and what is non-essential in the following of God. And you and I need this book because we are living in a world in which it is impossible to know what is the pollution in the water and what is the pure teachings of God. Let's just untangle the story you and I were told. We're going to do this briefly, but I hope slow enough. We are what kind of a polity? We are a democracy, a republic, a democratic republic, a representative democracy. You, use, you pick your term. That's what we are. So here's the question for you. Does that style of government, did it originate in Israel? Were the Israelites a democratic republic? Where did democracy originate? Greece. Where did the republican idea of representative democracy develop? Rome. Israel was not a democracy. In fact, in Israel, the majority were almost always wrong. What kind of a world would it be if the majority of people always dictated the direction of the country? What would happen in Israel if that were true? They would have been destroyed way before they were. Because God calls very few people, very few people. The road is narrow that leads to life and few find it. But the road is wide that leads to destruction and many find it. Any polity set up for the majority rule will go to destruction. Because wide is the road that leads to death. God never set that up. He first set up judges 
And he next set up a king and he sent that king prophets, but never did he vote. Never. That came from Greece and Rome and we know who rules them. So let's be careful. The other question we have, here's the, here's the pick. I'm going to say this very carefully. Even if you were in Israel, the chosen nation of God with kings anointed by the Spirit, with the temple in your capital city, you could not get more authorized than that. Were all of their wars godly? Was every war fought by Israel godly in the Scriptures? No. You don't know if a war is godly based on who is fighting it. You know whether a war is godly, whether God commands it. And Israel, were the Israelites ever required to make any kind of a symbol that represented their country and pledge allegiance to the country? Did that ever happen in the scriptures? Can you think of a single scene anywhere in the Bible where that was done under David or Solomon or Hezekiah or Josiah or any king? Of course not. The Israelites pledge allegiance to what? They do it at 13 years old to this day. They pledge allegiance to the law and to the God who gave it. That is what they were required to do. They didn't pledge allegiance to David. If David broke the law, he was to be stoned under it. The law was above the kings of Israel. God was above the kings of Israel. When they sinned, God judged them. And the people were judged for following them. This is our scriptures. These are our scriptures. What world do we live in? The nations of the earth always want us to pledge allegiance to them. Just as Babylon wanted the people, Daniel and the others, who were, they wanted them to pledge allegiance to them. Because anybody living in your territory that will not pledge allegiance to you is a threat to you. Now you might say, yeah, but God says to submit to the governing authorities and to pray for the nation to which we're sent into exile. And that's true. We do submit to governing authorities, but not because they are authoritative, but because... God is the one that sits above all these things. And even if those fallen angels think they're God, we know they're not. We know there's a God who put them in place. And if we can't respect them, we can certainly respect the God that authorized them to lead. Now, they're in rebellion, but we're not in rebellion against this God, so we recognize his derivative authority. And so we submit. But if they tell us to rebel against God, just like Daniel, we're not going to eat the meat. Because God is the king to which we owe our allegiance. Father, open our eyes. We have been so long in this exile. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus ascended into the heavens. We've been so long in this exile that Christians have forgotten who we are and from whom we have come. And the spiritual forces of evil in this world have decided that we are gullible targets because what we really want is feelings, emotions, and food. Jesus already saw it. You remember the stories when he fed 5,000 people with just a few loaves and they followed him everywhere. And finally, he got so irritated with it. He said, you're not following me because of what I've told you. You're following me because you want more food. Well, the spiritual forces of evil know that that's what leads people, their stomachs and their desires. And so they're happy to give us freedom. 
They're happy to give us power and authority and wealth. They're happy to do that if it will keep us close to them, which protects them from God, and if it will keep us close to them so that we can be corrupted enough not to be a real danger to them. That's the game that's being played with you. And the church has not been well aware of this. God is calling us, church. He's not judging you. He's warning you. He is not... He's getting you ready for the judgment so that you can follow Jesus through the waters. We have to get rid of our idols. We have to let loose our ties to the things God is destroying. When we read the passage, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. That land is not the land owned by the spiritual forces of evil. That's, they want you to pray for them because you are their only hope for survival. But the land God will heal is the land of Israel, not physical Israel on earth, the new Jerusalem. He is healing the church. And we need healing because we have lost our way. People of God, the spiritual forces of evil have bribed you for loyalty. They have given you freedom, wealth, opportunity, a bill of rights, so that you will not turn on them. So that you will pray for them. So that you will live in their cities and they will not face the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. They've kept you close for their own survival. And they have polluted you to make sure you never knew the game being played on you. But God is opening our eyes in these days. And we are beginning to see whose we really are. And for those with eyes to see, God is asking you to cut your ties. You can't eat that polluted meat anymore. You have all that you need if you would just read it. And you might say, I don't know where to start. Start in Matthew. Start with Jesus. He will illuminate it. And then you can go back and you can understand everything because of what he's taught you. 